Hello and welcome to Paleo Cinema Podcast 212. My name is Terry Frost and this time around with my guest Tansy Rainer Roberts I'm going to be discussing Cabaret and Calamity Jane. So we're doing musicals this time. So sit back, I'll get the contact details out of the way and we'll get the show started. Paleo Cinema Podcast appears every two weeks. It's a podcast of classic movie appreciation. The only rule we have is that the movies have to be more than 20 years old. Uh, feedback's important to podcasters, so if you'd like to leave reviews on iTunes, they'd be very welcome. You can also send voicemails or emails to feedbackpaleo at gmail.com or go to the Paleo Cinema Cafe on Facebook. You can even friend me up on Facebook as long as you're nice and civil and don't spit on the carpet. Just be aware that the podcast does have adult themes at times, so just be aware of that. Uh, anyway, I'll get on with the show now, and um, I hope you enjoy it. Hello, and welcome to Paleo Cinema Podcast 212. My name's Terry Frost, and this podcast and the next one are going to be about musicals. And because it's about musicals, and you don't just want to hear me, I have a guest, the wonderful Tansy Rainer Roberts. Hi, Tansy. Hi, Terry. Okay. So, yeah, I mean, I know about you, but some of the people listening might not. So if you can give the wonderful self-promotion spiel that you do, and oh. um, we'll move on from there. Uh, okay. Well, I am a science fiction and fantasy writer. Uh, I sometimes write crime novels too. I'm also a Hugo Award-winning podcaster with Galactic Suburbia, mm-hmm. which is a podcast about the science fiction industry and books and culture, I think. You know, pop culture consumed is one of our, our regular topics. So we, we talk a lot about just what we're reading, what we're watching. Cool. And you live in Tasmania. I do live in Tasmania, yes. Yep. The land of two-headed giants and all those sorts of things. Yeah. Also, we, we we grow a lot of fruit here. <laughs> yes, you do the Apple Isle. Um, yeah. Yeah, Sally keeps threatening to take me on a holiday down there. It's a beautiful spot. Yeah, but every time I went down there was for conventions and it was freezing cold. Well, that's because the conventions were always in June, Terry. Yes, I it's know. always freezing cold in June in Tasmania. Come down in a different month. Yeah, I'm kind of negotiating through the climate. Climatic, climatic, climatic um, variability of Tasmania before we go on a holiday, but we will come down and visit at some stage. Yeah, there's actually a fantastic local film festival. It's about to to start. Like the, they do it every year or two, called Stranger with My Face, and mm-hmm. it's a women's horror film festival that they started out of somebody's garage about five or six years back. So you do get some interesting arts events down here too. Yes, you've got um, the Museum of Modern Art. We do. With that very unusual wall. It has all sorts of interesting walls. It does have a number of interesting <laughs> walls. I'll let people find that out for themselves. But, yeah, um, let them have fun Googling. Yes, and I intend to have a Facebook profile picture um, taken against that wall. But anyway, yeah. <laughs> moving on. Um, yeah, so uh, we'll start with what have you been watching and viewing and consuming ah. and doing? Uh, the last week or so, um, I've actually, let's see, what have I been doing? Uh, I've been watching a lot of uh, TV shows specifically with my 12-year-old because the exciting thing about having kids is they get to an age where you suddenly realise, hang on, when I was their age, I'd watched all kinds of quite adult content. Mm-hmm. Hey, let's rewatch Buffy. So, so that's the thing we were doing since January. 
Uh, I was introducing her to Buffy and we watched all the way through. That was really fun. There's a couple of other shows that we've been watching together, just the two of us. Uh, we've been following Riverdale, mm-hmm. which we adore, otherwise known as Sexy Murder Archie, yep. which is basically a retelling. Well, they've taken the characters from Archie Comics and they've turned it into a show that's really weird, glam, Twin Peaks meets Veronica Mars murder mystery type glamorous teen soap. I don't know. I still can't tell. We've watched like 11 episodes. I still can't tell if it's amazing or terrible. It's that kind of show, but it's very compelling. Well, I hope you kind of work out what it is by the time you finish watching it because yeah, I know. You, you've got it's, to know how you feel at the end of it. It's yeah. very disturbing. And speaking of musicals, which I know we're about to, mm-hmm. uh, the other show that uh, Rayleigh and I have really been into is Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, which we adore. And it's basically a – it's a comedy drama which sounds like it's going to be terrible from the title, uh, but it's amazingly kind of feminist and subversive and strange, and it's also a musical. So it's about this this woman who throws in her whole life and goes to live in this small town in California largely because she met her – or re-met her, her teen boyfriend, and he seemed to be weirdly happy. Mm-hmm. And so part of it is that she's chasing this relationship that's more than 10 years old, and, yeah, she's kind of maybe a stalker, but also she's chasing happiness because she was a high-flying lawyer and she was miserable. So there's a lot of really interesting stuff about uh, mental illness and sexuality, and the songs are just so good. As you realize, you go along that, oh, they didn't just cast these people for – comic skills hey he knows how to tap dance and okay. hey that one's really good at this and it's a wonderful ensemble but the use of music is really very inventive and interesting i know a lot of people you know find the characters or the main character really annoying and could get past the first episode or two but yeah we're, we're really in love with this show so yeah that's crazy ex-girlfriend i might try an episode of it it may not be in my wheelhouse but i will give it a go well, you can also just search for some of the songs because I think once you see some of the clever stuff they're doing with the songs, you're like, all right, I'll, it's enough to sort of find out what the characters are up to. The uh, Rachel Bloom, who created the show and is the star, she was also the mind behind uh, – do you remember Fuck Me, Ray Bradbury? Yeah. It was that – yeah, that sort of clip – uh, song she does that's her so she's like kind of a musical genius she does all this interesting stuff with songs and performance but also she's yeah there's lots of really she the first the one the first episode has a song in which she sings the sexy getting ready song and it shows all the things that young women tr- traditionally or sort of feel they have to do to get ready for a date you know all the plucking and the waxing and all this and there's this rapper in support and he's so horrified by what he sees in the song he's like wow i gotta to apologize to some bitches and then he like at the end of the credits he's there writing apology letters to all the women who've ever appeared in his rap uh musicals his yeah. videos so you know it's yeah it's 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 a smart show yeah, I, I never kind of went into that because when I was dating, once upon a time when the world was young, I just <laughs> cared that people smelled nice. <laughs> My standards were that far down. Yeah, if they were nice people and they smelled nice, I was happy. But, but you know, I think people being comfortable is the most important thing. But, yeah. yeah it's, it's, so that's what you've been in. Uh, that's me, what I've been into. What have I've, you been I've, um I've been watching a lot of YouTube videos because they're easy to digest. It's like comfort food for your head yes and so i've been watching a lot of things where um people make explosives and blow them up in their house and then tell you how to do it 
Oh, that sounds so calming and relaxing. Well, it is. And also, you know, should there be a zombie apocalypse, I can probably make landmines. Yeah, it's good to build the skills now. Absolutely so. Yeah, a lot of skill building there. And also I've been watching some other ones that are involved in a um, console game I'm playing called Destiny. So yeah. I'm getting tips on that kind of thing. And in between that, I must have been listening to music. I've kind of let music lapse over the last year. Um, as people might know, it's been a fairly stressful year for me. And I'm trying to re-engage with music and um, kind of use that as therapy in a sense. Yeah. So I'm doing a lot of that. So I bought, uh, for 20 bucks, I got a four-volume set of The Monkees. Aww. Yeah, I know. It's great. It's a, a really good compilation, some unreleased stuff as well, and all of that kind of thing. Uh, I got a four-disc um, box set of Australian pop music from the 60s. I'm into Italian pop music of the 60s now, so I'm doing things. I don't understand a word of it. <laughs> But there's some very cool music in there, so um, I'm going on my semi-annual drive randomly through Victoria for about 12 hours, have a day off kind of thing um, next Wednesday. So I'm going to be playing lots of Italian pop music and things while I race around country roads in Victoria and end up somewhere I haven't been before. That sounds like a mighty quest. It is, and it's a lot of fun. It makes your right foot sore from the keeping it on the accelerator. <laughs> but, um, but apart from that, it's a very therapeutic thing for me. It's something I discovered really works for me. Yeah. And so I'm going to be doing that and uh, probably Facebooking it all the way along the line the way I usually nice. do. Nice. Yeah, sorry if there's noise in the background, but I'm peeling the chestnuts I just roasted. <laughs> and they're, they're beautifully tasty. It's almost like they taste a little bit like peas. But uh, they're very, very nice. Anyway, um, so I've got that. I did. Uh, we did go to see Guardians of the Galaxy Volume Two. We did too. Yeah. Yes, last weekend. And, uh, we did the gold class thing where you get in the posh seats. Oh, I and love that. The new gold class ones here, they've got a really wide armrest where you can put your bag into it. Okay. And um, yeah, and then they have these kind of gourmet popcorn things. Oh, I've they... seen the posters for those. Don't Do they actually? No. <laughs> they are. Piss poor and ordinary. Um, I go to standard popcorn with it. Um, I did get a really nice espresso milkshake, which is a contradiction in terms I know because you don't put milk in espresso. But they gave me a a nice milkshake. But um, we did the full experience. We sat through all five post-credit sequences, and we enjoyed it a lot. We had a great time Um. with it. Yeah, we, we, we really loved it too. And I just say, I really appreciated the, that the credits were so entertaining. Like, not just having the, the many smaller sequences, so you're not, but also the, the credits themselves were worth watching. Yeah. So you didn't have that experience of sitting there for four minutes, which always feels like about 10 minutes, yeah. going, can't we just go yet? Is it going to be worth it? And then if you get a disappointing end credit sequence, it's like, you know, you just get really cross. Whereas they, yeah, I thought they, they did a beautiful job with those end credits to make you actually want to stick Entertained, around. Entertained, yeah. Um, yeah. That's one of the things I did. Uh, there have been a couple of movies where some people I know worked on them. Yeah. And then they've got those endless scrolls of names and you're trying to find the person that you know is in there somewhere. Yeah. And it gets really annoying. And, and you know, you, by the time the post credit sequences come along, you've got a bad headache just from trying to find your friend's name in this endless litany of about half the people living in the world. Uh, yeah. Coming up on the post credit sequences. But this one they did really well. They, they kind of made it work. They um, did a little bit of Easter eggs in there as yep. well, which is nice. 
and the uh, the soundtrack's good. We bought the soundtrack on disc. Ah. Yeah. So. Yeah. No, I've been meaning to do that because we listened to the soundtrack for the first one over and over and over, and I do a lot of driving around with superhero-obsessed children. Uh, not just mine, like many, many children, so I really want to get the second soundtrack. And Yeah, yeah it's quite cheap too. JB has it for like 15 bucks. Yeah, I like the use of music. I think the use of music that they did in the first Guardians of the Galaxy movie and the way that the the music interacted with the story, it wasn't just sitting there, Was it was this lovely dimension that they added to the film. And yeah. it's just so funny. And it's integrated as well. It's part of the yeah. plot. It's um, Peter Quill's only contact with his cultural roots. Yeah, very much so. And I remember, like, in the first movie, one of the biggest points of tension for me was, like, the vulnerability of that cassette player. Yeah. <laughs> like, when it gets taken off him for a while, and it's like, I was genuinely worried about it because it was an irreplaceable object. And, you know, people just don't know, like, what it was like with cassettes. Mm. And, like, oh, my God, it's the last cassette player in the universe. Well, that's it. And also the Marvel space culture doesn't seem to have invented MP3s in any way, so... Um, I don't know how they record or, or store music, but obviously they can't transcribe from a cassette tape. Oh, I don't know, though, because they were doing that in the new movie, remember? There's in that the scene movie, the, the where movie, it turns out, yeah, that the the was it the Ravagers had cloned his music, including the, 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 the tape he hadn't unwrapped yet, which is like, well, that's a really interesting technology. Yep. Uh, I'd like to know how that works. Yeah, and Craiglin gave him a new... Um, Music player. Yes, yes. Which is kind of cool. But uh, anyway, um, we probably should move on to the actual movies. We're doing we two, two movies with strong female characters in them. Well, one's weak and strong, and one's just kind of strong. Um, the two movies are Calamity Jane from 1953, starring Doris Day, Howard Keel, Dick Wesson, who's my favourite character in the movie, and... Um, uh, a bunch of other people, and then we move on to Cabaret, Bob Fosse's 1972 movie starring Liza Minnelli, Joel Grey, Michael York, and a bunch of interchangeable Germans. Uh, That's fair. So, yep. So, so yeah, um, Bob Fosse, we go from um, Deadwood stage to Weimar, Germany, which is kind of interesting, but uh, there are some commonalities between them. There. Calamity Jane and Cabaret have had stage adaptations there was a previous uh before the movie there was a previous stage version of cabaret which was totally retconned into the movie and all subsequent versions of the stage play followed the movie more than the original stage play and calamity jane which started out as a movie ended up being done on stage a number of times as well it's always interesting isn't it to see with musicals that seems to happen a lot but in various orders, because the thing you're saying about Cabaret, about how the movie affected future versions of the play, I think that's happened with, like, Grease and all of the other big musicals as well. Yeah. Because once they've done a movie version, that's so iconic that, yeah. It's crazy because Melbourne, in particular, ends up getting tons and tons of stage musicals based on movies and um, other kind of media. Uh, The Lion King, and we get... um, Oklahoma regularly and all all sorts of other things, My Fair Lady and all that kind of stuff. And it's really strange because I want to see some new stuff. I want to find something a bit contemporary and new. And everybody's kind of just going and go, okay, every five years we'll do Guys and Dolls. Yeah, it's it's kind of interesting, isn't it? My my eldest, my my 12-year-old is actually really into theatre stuff. We've been going to a lot more 
theatre in, um, in you know live shows, but also she's she's really into like this teen fandom of theatre, which I knew happened. Like I knew about Hamilton and stuff, and mm. but like she finds these new musicals. For instance, we have a um, a showing of of Heather's the musical coming up in a month that we're going to. Now I didn't know that they'd made a music a stage musical based on the eighties movie Heather's, mm. uh, but there's this whole like teen fandom around the show she's watched songs on youtube she's really she's done fan art she's really kind of deeply invested she won't let me watch those because she doesn't want to spoil (laughs) the show for me uh but i find that really interesting and now she's like finding new musicals and and stuff like that the latest was one called dear evan hansen which was a broadway show last year which is about you know teen suicide and the fallout of this to a um you know, a, a boy who wasn't friends with the the boy who killed himself, but uh, people think he was, and it's this whole like original. So there are original musicals out there, but yeah, when it comes to stuff that actually comes to the stage, then yeah, it's the the classics do yep. keep getting a workaround, don't they? Yeah, it's a bit like Kabuki theatre. Eventually, it's going to fossilise into a certain format. Yeah. But um, yeah, the, the, there's not a lot of love for new stuff in Melbourne because all of the theatre goers tend to want comfort rather than something that challenges them. Yeah, and I suppose the the ones that have the money to go to theatre regularly is going to be the older, you know, percentage of the populace and and perhaps more conservative people, but yeah. I mean, they even did a stage adaptation of North by Northwest in Melbourne. Wow. I know. Wow, that's I'm not sure how they crop dusted the protagonist with an aeroplane, but apparently they did. Yeah, well, you know what? I went to a, a stage production of Wuthering Heights last year and they made it rain on stage. So it's amazing what they can do. Seriously, the last scene, you've got like, you know, dead bodies and blood everywhere and rain. And it's like, this is the Theatre Royal. I don't know that I'm okay with them doing this, but it was fantastic. Yeah, yeah the best thing I saw on stage in the last 20 years was I had a um, girlfriend before I met Sal. I've got to specify that, um, yeah. where she was in amateur theatre and they did a production of Oklahoma somewhere out in the eastern suburbs where everybody votes liberal. And the only bit I really loved about it was they had the guy playing the Van Johnson character in Brigadoon because it was okay. an adaptation of Brigadoon. And he did a perfect Van Johnson imitation. Every nuance was there. Everything was, like, perfect. And I was thoroughly amused by it, and I thought, you know, I don't care of these people dancing over the heather. I just want to hear the Van Johnson guy come back on stage and do it really well. <laughs> so, so it's really strange what you take away from theatre. Yes. Mm. Yes. So anyway, we're going to do Calamity Jane first. Yes, I'll take a little break and, and drop a little bit of the trailer for Calamity Jane in. Uh-huh. And then we'll talk about this movie and how it has a subversive aspect when viewed from the 21st century. Doesn't it just? It does. The Deadwood Stage! The Deadwood Stage! Here they be, here they be, how's about a welcome, a peaceful sort of welcome for the gang. Folks, gather round. Let's give a real Deadwood City welcome to the gang. Not Kit Carson, not Buffalo Bill, not Davy Crockett. I mean that one-woman gang from the tall country who told the tallest tales from Kalamazoo to California. Calamity Jane! 
And down they come out of them hills a-hollin' like souls in torment. Why, must have been a hundred of them. <laughs> must have killed about 30 of them painted varmints before they got discouraged. <laughs> yes, there never was a glibber fibber or a cuter shooter than Calamity Jane. She could outstalk, outdraw, outride any man in Deadwood City, except Wild Bill Hickok. Only with you killing off them redskins so fast, I was wondering why the government even bothered to send the army. Are you calling me a liar again? Don't you ever fix your hair? They called her Calamity, but you'll call her Calossal, as Doris Day lights your life with laughter and song in an exciting new star combination with Howard Keel as Wild Bill Hickok, who gets tamed by the blonde buckaroo in buckskins. Take me back to the black hills, the black hills That was the trailer for Calamity Jane, a 1953 Warner Brothers musical, which was done in the Academy ratio, wasn't done widescreen, starring Doris Day and Howard Keel. Now, the, there's one reason why this movie was made, apart from the fact that they wanted to make money, which is always the reason why movies are made True. in old school Hollywood. Um, Warner Brothers, and Jack Warner in particular, wanted to get Annie Get Your Gun, the rights to Annie Get Your Gun for a Doris Day vehicle. And I think it's MGM got the rights and did it with Betty Hutton. They were originally going to do it with um, Judy Garland, but she got sick. And so they did a big stage widescreen adaptation of Andy Get Your Gun with Betty Hutton, which was very successful. So Warner Brothers spat the dummy and decided who else in the Wild West was a woman that we can <laughs> adapt um, a musical from. And they picked um, Calamity Jane. And used it as a Doris Day vehicle. They also had um, Howard Keel making musicals. He'd done some for MGM, but um, they farmed him out to Warner Brothers for this one. And uh, let me get my paperwork ready. I should have had it ready. I was actually researching the real-life Calamity Jane for this for some reason. Yeah, I actually had to stop and do some looking up too because so interesting. We can do that first. I mean... Interesting woman. You know, she was looking after five siblings at the age of 14 in Salt Lake City and raising them. And, uh, yeah, she was a troubled woman. She had alcohol problems. Um, she was very fond of men and not just one at a time. And, uh, you know, unfortunately, the alcohol got the best of her. There's some possibility she worked as a prostitute for a time, but she was also, um, as in the movie, 
riding shotgun on stage coaches and and basically doing things that polite and nice women didn't do in the 1880s in the US. Yeah, dressing in male clothing and taking on male roles, which is featured in the movie, perhaps not with the same nuance we might like hope for a historical retelling. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, it, I think it's really interesting that a lot of the information we have about her comes from her uh, an autobiographical book mm. or booklet pamphlet that she dictated herself. Doesn't necessarily mean it was true, and that's another aspect that I think was picked up in the movie in kind of interesting ways is the way that she is retelling her life. And that she kind of, you know, blows up her adventures to sound maybe a bit more exciting than they actually were. Yeah, there are uh, some hints of the real calamity, Jane, in this. Not a, not a lot, but there are a few gosh. of them. The fact that she didn't wash very much. Um, one of the things that was said about her was that in her youth she was a good-looking woman, but then she went out in the sun and her skin dried out. And, yeah. She, you know, and uh, of course, alcohol always affects anybody's looks. Yeah, and let's face it, the dudes of the time probably weren't looking that great either. But of course, and we're that, and we're picky either. (laughs) (sighs) Yeah, that's actually a really big theme of this movie. I gotta say. Yeah, yeah. I mean, male lust features highly as a background theme and a and a plot engine for this movie in a lot of ways. People know most of the story. Calamity Jones, played by Doris Day, she rides into Deadwood, South Dakota, as a shotgun messenger on a stagecoach. I'm kind of paraphrasing from Wikipedia here. Yeah. And at the local saloon, the Golden Garter, um, she hangs out there with uh, Wild Bill Hickok, played by Howard Keel, who looks like he's in another movie at times. Um, <laughs> and, um, yeah, and uh, the guy who runs the Golden Garter, who's got the funny name of Henry Miller, if you know your literature, it's a funny name for a barkeeper to have. Um, and everyone calls him Millie. So that's the first hint at, with the subtext in this. Everybody calls the bar guy who runs the bar Millie which is a kind of female name. Uh, he, he hires a, um, a cabaret entertainer called Francis Fry, thinking it's a woman, but it turns out to be a guy played by an actor called Dick Wesson. And all of the people who come to see Francis Fry are expecting a woman. So Millie gets him to dress up in drag and do um, his act uh, in female drag, which doesn't work because the wig gets taken off him by accident. Yeah. And um, she comes down, and so they all decide that they're going to get a famous actress from Chicago, Adelaide Adams, to come to Deadwood and do a show because all of the guys in Deadwood seem to be lusting after cigarette card pictures of the actress Adelaide Adams. It turns out they don't get Adelaide, they get her um, assistant, Katie, instead by accident when they send Calamity Jane to Chicago. And that sets up a love quadrangle between um, a army major, I think it is, uh, while Bill Hickok, Calamity Jane and Katie. So that pretty much covers the plot, doesn't it? It pretty much does. Uh, One of the things that's really important is that Calamity declares that she's going to fetch Adelaide to stop a riot because basically the men of the town are so starved for female company, Hmm. that they're kind of, you know, they're desperate to basically see some boobs. Like, that's what they're there for. And And the fact, yeah, and, 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 well, ankles, I think, perhaps more than anything. So, like, it it was, she, she sort of made up this story, as she often does, but in this case, she made up the story of being able to get Adelaide Adams, the, the quintessential, you know, female object of beauty in their, in their hearts and their fandom, uh, 
to just to save the guy running the the theater to so that he won't be like they yeah. actually use the word lynched uh yeah. you know um yeah and of course the big thing with the 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 love quadrangle as well as the friendship between Jane and Katie is really important and Katie starts teaching or rather not Jane uh Kalam as they all yep. call it yep. teaching Kalam how to actually live dress and behave perform as a woman yeah uh which you know actually sort of becoming more ladylike which leads to all sorts of romantic complications and entanglements and differences because, you know, sometimes having having a bath and wearing a dress does actually make a difference to how people perceive you. Having a bath in particular, I think. Yeah, yeah I think that's the thing. Like, yeah. ultimately, and I like the fact that, like, when she she finds her base of what she's comfortable wearing, mm-hmm. like she's still wearing trousers by the end of the movie, but she does seem to be bathing more regularly. It's like, you know, she finds a happy compromise. There's yep. so much in this movie. Like, it's really hard to find, like, a, a five-minute section of this movie that isn't massively sexist or racist or both. Yeah. Like, yeah, it's the, so problematic. Every movie every movie before a certain date is problematic. One I of the things I've got to, I know. I know what you so Yeah. One of the things I've got to do with paleo cinema on a regular basis is confront the sexism, racism, jingoism of a movie right up front. Yeah, you do all this I think near, front load that stuff that. and go. Yes, this is racist and sexist and that, but here's yeah. the stuff I like, so we can go to that. Yeah, acknowledging yes, racism, sexism, and admire the movie for one of the things that I love about the movie, the gender bending. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because like, there's so much in it that's, like I said, a problem. But it also becomes quite interesting and subversive in how they do it. I'm on the one hand, like, the basic thing of you are going to laugh because we've dressed up. <clears throat> we've dressed up this male character as a woman. Therefore, that's hilarious. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, it leads to, like, his life being threatened. It's like, you're still finding this hilarious, right? And it's like, yeah. well, you know, maybe less so now. But there's just so much. They Ooh. took the the fact that Kalam wears men's clothing and then they repeat it over and over in different ways. Yeah, and there, but there are two men in there dressing in drag. I mean, while Bill Hickok loses the bet to Calamity Jane and has to yes. dress up as a First a Nations American squaw with yeah. a papoose, <laughs> with a baby. Including a real baby, yeah. a real baby, and a group of Indians he has apparently yeah. like brought with him so yeah. that he can hold their baby to vet. They look really unimpressed. Yeah, I uh, mean, they're, they're yeah. a stage dressing, and obviously to make sure he doesn't kill kidnap or kill their baby i suppose yeah but, and he just like wears it with such dignity yeah but, um oh <laughs> so there's two guys dressing in drag for a start yeah then you've got a very kind of masculine female lead character yes. played by doris day who before that hadn't done anything anywhere near this uh she did a, a number of good movies and was a surprisingly good dramatic actress in a couple of them yeah um, uh, yeah particularly hitchcock's um, the man who knew too much and things like that. But uh, one of the things I really like about the movie as well is Doris Day's dancing and acting. There's a lot of physicality to what she does and a lot of stunt work. Absolutely. Partic- particularly in some of the dance sequences where people are dragging her up into the balcony and then dropping her back down again and all of that kind of thing. And she really commits to it too. She's crazy fit. Um, you can see she's crazy fit wearing those buckskins. Yeah, and the way she walks, like she, she walks... Not necessarily like a man, but she definitely has this sort of swagger about her. And the, what one thing she does beautifully is when she is wearing the 
the the gowns and the frocks, she's still walking like you know a dude. Yeah. Uh, she's she's got this beautiful awkwardness to her, which having seen her in other stuff, you know this this is pure acting. This is, yeah. but she 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 always seems so uncomfortable in that stuff, and and she just yeah she. She has this marvellous square-on practicality to her. Yeah. And there's that other thing, too, when she goes to Chicago, where one of the women walking down the street past her turns and winks at her. Yeah. And then when uh, when she first meets Katie in the dressing room of Adelaide Adams, Katie thinks she's a guy as well. Yeah, and he's actually genuinely afraid that, like, this, yeah. this weird man has broken into her, her dressing room her dressing room yeah uh and appears to be like about to make off with her yeah yeah so there's a lot of that that interesting element to it mm. uh yeah absolutely and of course katie herself is pretending to be something other than she is because she's the maid of the famous actress who is given her frocks just before the famous actress adelaide you know, flits off to Paris, yeah. and everyone thinks that she's. Well, particularly Kalam thinks she is the the famous actress, and convinces everybody else she is. But she chokes when she gets on stage because she's never done this before. Mm. And there's this whole actually quite lovely subplot about the town kind of falling in love with Katie and kind of giving her a chance to perform and entertain them. Yeah. You know how 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 kind of them really. And how good she is once she gets a confidence with it too. Yeah. That that dance sequence and singing sequence where she's kicking the hats off the top of guys' heads who are standing up. Yes. And we've got to give props to the actress, um, Alan Ann McClary. She does a really nice job of it too. She does the shy stuff and then she does the confidence stuff. And she's a superb dancer. She is. Like she really kind of does all that really well and said the the friendship between her and and Kalam is like the the heart of the movie whatever all the romance stuff going on yep. uh very much so like to the point where and I was glad that you said this, you know <laughs> it, it does have this whole reading you you can totally read this thing as a queer romance I mean you just kind of can absolutely yeah and you know they set up house and they've got they a do. nice painted sign on the door saying Kalam and Katie yeah in, in beautiful script and then later on Doris Day sings her Academy Award winning song about secret love once I had a secret love that lived within That's very true. Yeah, and, and they're both kind of, well, it's a thing, isn't it? Because it's the, the exchange of the, the romantic leads. Like, even at the end, where it's like figuring out which girl is going to end up with which guy, there's definitely a, wow, they're totally all going to set up house together, aren't they? <laughs> it's like, yeah. yeah, 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 that's definitely a thing that's happening. And, and the big thing, of course, one of the big uh, uh, tension points towards the end, Kalam is in love with the lieutenant who likes Katie. What's his name? Uh, Bill Hickok also likes Katie because, like, she's, as far as they're concerned, the only girl in town. Yeah. But when the lieutenant and Katie actually get together, Kalam is so furious and upset and jealous yeah. Uh, she basically throws Katie out. There's all this drama. And Katie ends up completely leaving town mm. because she doesn't want to hurt her best friend. And Kalam goes on a pure 
rom-com run to chase down her girl and, like, get forgiveness. You know, that is the whole thing. So, yeah, there's that. Yeah, and also one of the things that enhances that, too, is the fact that there's pretty much no chemistry between Howard Keel and Doris Day in this, or between Philip Carey, who plays the other guy, and either of the women. So because the guys are so kind of interchangeable interchangeable and abstracted from the process, we focus on the relationship between the two women, which is a lot of fun. They, they, They have a singing and dancing thing where they clean the house up. Yep. They um they support and nurture the best aspects of each other. They do. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's very understandable. And Katie, like, I always get really frustrated at stories in which the you know there are only two two female characters and their job is to compete over a guy. Like that's just so endemic to just stories generally, and it's always annoying. But what's really nice about this is that for a start, Katie is so invested in Kalam's happiness. Mm. She ditches the lieutenant. Like, she kind of likes him, but she doesn't necessarily like him as much as he likes her. She's quite happy to ditch him and the town and go start again rather than hurt her best friend. And and once Kalam doesn't love her anymore, there is nothing for her in this town. Yes. And also, she's found her best self. Doing that cabaret stuff is her best self, so she can do that anywhere. And and she's kind of you know gained her own confidence and her own sense of who she is, which is kind of yeah. nice. As indeed does Calamity Jane, though who she is tends to be very much reinforced by nineteen fifties musical strictures. Yeah. Saying that she's got to be the wife and and be in love and probably pop out a whole bunch of kids and stop riding on top of stagecoaches shooting at yeah. First Nation Americans. Yeah. It 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 is that, and oh my goodness, the whole. The whole Native American, like, every, I know that, like, with the Wild West stories, that stuff kind of comes to the territory, especially in the 50s when, you know, the Western was, it was its own genre of fake history, you know. Yep. But wow, wow. like the. <laughs> and this actually is a little bit dated even for the time because the early 50s is when the Western started to change and have a more nuanced and um, accepting view of First Nation Americans. You know, there were things yeah. like Shy and Autumn were coming out around the same time, whereas this one just kind of goes with the cliches of the old um, interchangeable, shoot them in the head, don't worry about it. It's pretty much kids' Americans. playground, court yeah. cowboys and Indians. Like, it's that level of sophistication. And, yeah, the only hint we have that maybe Native Americans are people you should actually shoot at is that odd scene of the people whose baby Bill Hickok yep. kidnaps uh, yep. for, to do a bit, yep. you know? Um, so, a moment so there, but yeah, for the most part, yeah, there, I mean, yeah. there is that thing where um, in The Real Calamity Jane did do a bunch of that stuff. She did actually go and rescue a stagecoach, and it's documented independently that she did that. Yeah. Um, and of necessity, uh, mostly distracted and kind of outmaneuvered, but also um, put some bullets into some indigenous Americans uh, yeah. as a part of that. So that's definitely in there as a part of the thing. But um, they kind of ran with it here to probably because little boys would be going to see the movie as well. So you've got to have some shooting and some yeah. cowboy stagecoach kind of stuff and as well as kissing. And that's, it's kind of nice to have that balance. I actually, like, leaving aside the romantic stuff, because I agree with you completely about the chemistry, I really liked the weird friendship between Calamity Jane and Bill Hickok. Mm. Like, they have this very competitive friendship, yeah. which obviously the movie chooses you to believe, you know, this is the couple who 
uh, bitch at each other and then they're sort of secretly in love because, hey, they've been snarky at each other all along. Mm. And I don't know if they necessarily pull that off. But as a friendship, because I think it has this sense where, like, yes, he does occasionally make very disparaging comments about her lack of femininity, but also he treats her like a man most of the time. He treats her like an equal. Mm. They have this sort of aggressive, competitive, fighting fighting over a girl, let's face it. Yeah. Um, you know, fighting with each other kind of friendship, which, you know, I mean, at one point he lassoes her yeah. and hangs her from the stage because she, like, humiliated him by making him go through the bet when he had she hadn't actually won. And mm. there's all this really interesting sort of frisson between them. Yeah. But, yeah, it does get a lot less interesting as soon as they kiss, apart from the fact that clearly compared to the lieutenant, he's, like, a million times more interesting. Mm. But also... Once they sort out all the other drama going on, being married to him clearly does not mean that she has to actually like give up her trousers and give up her adventures and stuff because he actually kind of likes that part about her. So we don't see a completely transformed calamity. Like the makeover doesn't 100% stick. She settles into this nice compromise. Yeah, yeah. it's kind of in the middle. And getting back to my favourite character... Uh, oh yeah, Francis Fryer. I, yes. I, I kind of liked this person. Uh, I liked him in a lot of things. He was in Destination Moon as one of the astronauts as well. Really? But, yeah, but you know, he, he's kind of bold because dressing in drag that blatantly in a 1950s movie was a career-threatening kind of thing to do. Yeah. Um, he, but he, he commits to it. He does it really well, and he ends up supporting all the char- all the main characters. He supports Calamity. He supports Katie as well, because he's in the same industry as them. And yeah. um, Dick West, an interesting guy. He had, ended up writing a lot of TV. He did a lot of episodes of Petticoat Junction and things like that, and ended up writing and things, and had a good career for that. And he started out um, in Hollywood doing a double comedy act with his brother Gene, and uh, Gene dropped out of the act. And then Dick Wesson started becoming an actor, and he's, he's kind of cool. I really like the character. And yeah. uh, the fact that he knows everyone's secrets, but just kind of keeps <laughs> them as well. That's true. I, I really like the fact that he supports Katie. Like, he was brought out here thinking he was getting a good job to, like, come out to the frontier, get paid well, entertain the, you know, the people. Uh, and that thing where he, you know, going on dressed as a woman, it's not just like threatening his sense of masculinity, whatever. Uh, he almost dies yeah. because of literally like it's the the fear of a town full of men being tricked into thinking a man is a woman, which, you know, yeah. in itself, you know, very problematic trope, mm. especially kind of these days. But it's like, you know, he does it, but then he, he supports Katie and he gets to actually show off what he can do mm. by being the support to her act. Yeah. And he's a good friend to her. There's a really interesting scene at the end where Kalam is really excited because she's worked everything out. She's now mm. in love with Bill and not the nameless lieutenant, which means she and Katie can be friends again and she goes to town, only to find the whole town freezing her out yep. because how she treated Katie means that Katie has left. And they all love Katie. Yep. Never mind that a lot of them just like seeing Katie's ankles. It's not just that. Like The town has embraced her as, hey, she's not like... She's not the fancy actress we thought she was. She's an ordinary person like us, therefore she's ours. And we're yeah. all we're all a bit second class around here, let's face it, as Calamity yeah. pointed out to them all, you know. None of them are kind of top shelf. They're all like running from something or hiding from something, mm. which is why they live in the middle of nowhere. 
uh, and they've embraced Katie, and the fact that she left makes them really hate calamity. And so this whole community freezes her out. And then Francis is kind of the one who seems to have the most sympathy for everybody. Uh, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah and he doesn't good... seem to be remotely romantically interested in either of the women. Like, he's Which... not also in love with Katie, like everyone else. Which could be telegraphed to something else again. Couldn't it just? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> uh, the, by the way, the Lieutenant Pabio Philip Carey is Danny Gilmartin. We've got to give him a name at least. I know, I know, but yep. he's so boring. He is, he's yeah. Just so boring. And I love that he's actually set up as this is the uninteresting male yep. interest that Kalam has a crush on for no good yep. reason. And I love that she has a crush on him and she then expresses her crush by completely saving his life. Yeah. Um, Did you notice yeah. the scene where she saves his life? He's tied up to a tree. And yeah. he's tied up in such a way that his legs are around this tree trunk. And it's very phallic looking. I did not notice that, but now yeah. I will every time I watch Yeah, it. so basically his yeah. arms and his legs are around this tree, which is like a, a medium-sized sapling yeah. kind of tree. I did think it was very interesting that he was in such a kind of submissive position. Like, he's damseled, yeah. and she goes and saves him. Yeah. And for a 1950s movie, like, that's actually kind of awesome, especially as a lot of the movie's narrative is about how Calamity really isn't as, you know, bold and brave and violent as she claims that she is like her stories are always really embellished yeah and in fact later on where she's telling the story she's talking about how she shot all these you know mm. indians uh and he's like not actually like telling a different story but mm. he's clearly like uncomfortable with the whole situation where this woman came and rescued him but then there's this other thing where she kind of almost feels like she's now earned his love and he's still not that into her yeah and it's just so awkward um yeah. Whereas if it was a guy and he yes. rescued a woman, the woman would automatically fall in love with him. And the audience would be completely on the side of that and would actually be turn against her if she wasn't. Like, there's this expectation, isn't there? Like, yeah. if, if a woman is rescued, that is, she responds by falling in love. That's what you do. You put the coin in the machine and you get love out the bottom. You know, that's what you do. Uh, uh, if it were that simple, I'd be a lot. <laughs> My life would have been less complex. But. The fact that she rescues him, the fact that she's the only one who does, like all yep. the soldiers come back and are like, oh, we lost him. And she's like, yep. well, no, I'm invested in this guy. And she, she rescues him. Mm. Uh, but, yeah, and, and then there's that whole oh, awkward thing where, like, he's into Katie literally because he, she is what he says the only viable female candidate yep. in town. She's the only unmarried girl in town because he doesn't count Kalam. And, in fact, Hickok... Bill, Bill falls in love with falls in love with Katie for exactly the same reason. She is the only prospect. Yeah. What's really fascinating is like in the last few scenes of the movie with the weddings and the, mm. the stuff, there's suddenly the town is full of women, and I'm like, <laughs> where did all these women come from? And they're like quite young looking, prettily dressed women in these mm. crowd scenes just at the end, and it's like. Really? Because the whole premise of the movie was that these men were so starved for female company yeah. that, you know, they were on the verge of riot, which is quite, you know, reasonable for frontier towns. And sure, all those women in the last few scenes might be married already. Yeah. But it's like, really? I think you just, you know, put the, you know, <laughs> completely undermine the premise of your movie with your choice of extras. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe a lot more women came to town. Yeah, I've got an Easter egg for you in Calamity Jane. Ooh, okay. can, you go, can you go onto IMDb Calamity Jane page and look I at the full cast and crew while I'm here? IMDb Calamity Jane, okay. Full cast and crew. 
Okay, let's finish. I know this is fascinating for people listening, but it's going to yeah, it's going to pay, it's to gonna pay off. It's going to pay off. Stuff. Yeah. Okay, let me look. Um, well, uh, so I'm going down looking at really the cast list. Cast list, yeah. Okay, go about halfway down and tell me if you see a familiar name. Uh, you're now like, t- oh my god, Barry, <laughs> is there something you haven't told us? <laughs> Okay, Prospector, uncredited, mm. Terry Frost. You bet I'm in there. Wow. Mm. Gee, you've been in a lot of stuff. Yeah, absolutely. I was in Superman episodes and everything. Yeah, I'm really looking po- Superman. Yeah. Also, Gunsmoke, wow. Yeah, Lots of really- Westerns I see in your career. Mm. Yep. Absolutely. Yep. It was really funny because one year my sister made me a homemade card with a picture of the actor Terry Frost on it. Aww. For my birthday. Yeah, my little sister Linda does nice things like that for me occasionally. But yeah, I saw my name in there and went, okay, I've got to mention that. Okay, what I love about this is just mm. how, not just how many things he's appeared in, but like, for instance, in 1957, he appears to have appeared <laughs> in like 15 yeah. movies. I mean, well, clearly. Well, very busy year I was born. <laughs> but wow. Oh, he was in the TV series of Annie Oakley as yeah. a butler and a henchman. Yeah. Love it. Okay. Yeah, all that kind of stuff. So there you go. There's, I think we should end on that. I uh, know we've got to do the songs because obviously it's a Ooh. musical. We forgot yeah. to talk about the songs. So you've got Deadwood Stage, which is really um, – S- Sally sat with me and watched it last night, and she sang all the songs. They're great. Yeah. They're so fun. I can see how once you're sort of familiar with it, watched it a few, a few times yeah. – it's very singable along. I watched the whole thing with my seven-year-old. Yeah. Uh, the twelve-year-old came home like just for the last like mm. act of the movie, and for I told the her boring about the bit, yeah. I, no, I told her about the queer subtext, and she watched it with me, and she's like, "Yeah, this totally is, isn't it?" And I'm like, "Yeah, it is." <laughs> um, but yeah, the seven-year-old was really into it, which mm. was is always like it feels like a win with old movies. Yeah. No, well, Deadwood Stage is is in there. I once heard an Estonian version of Deadwood Stage. Wow. On the radio, and it's hilariously funny. So uh, I can do without you, which is the kind of um, parallels um, anything you can do, I can do better from Any Get Your Gun. It's a little bit of a parallel. Ah, of course. But yeah. also, like, it's interesting because after the scene, that scene, Jemima referred to it as the fight, and it is mm. very much framed as a song that's also a fight. Like, they're very yeah. physical with each other mm. and very aggressive. And yeah, it's a song that's also a fight scene, is actually something I really like. So. Yeah, there's a few of those. Um, Young Girls of Rochefort, the Jacques Demy musical, has one like that where Catherine Deneuve's character is breaking up with a boyfriend who runs an art gallery. Yeah. And the whole song is an antagonistic breakup fight. Oh, nice. As well, it's beautiful stuff. And it really does kind of work well because one person gets one line and then some other person escalates with another one and they throw it back and forth. And it kind of does work. Yeah. I actually really love Just Blew In from the Windy City. Like yeah. that was the one where I'm like, oh, I know this song. Hmm. Uh, but also it just sums up so much about Kalam's character, you know, in that they're, they're trying to get her to tell a story and she's like hiding a lot of what's going on because, you know, and she's, she's, hmm. but then she just like can't help herself. And she tells this, this story because actually her experience going to the city was really uncomfortable for her. She didn't enjoy it. Yeah. She was felt completely out at sea. The women either thought she was a man or laughed at her. Yeah. You know, she she really didn't enjoy that experience at all. She's happy to be home, but she comes up with this very, uh, you know, cheerful, happy song about it all. But also it's reprised later. Is that the one that's reprised later with Katie where um, she's, she sings about how she's not going back to the Windy City? Yeah. There's yeah, a few moments like that, which I, especially having – Fallen in love with Hamilton. Mm. Uh, I'm really into reprises and that thing yep. where a little bit of a song is sort of, you know, 
retold later for slightly different effect. And I think there's a few cases here where that happens. Yeah. And there's Harry I'm Planning to Marry, which is a song Katie sings on stage and Francis sings on stage as well. Yeah, well, yeah. isn't that... We also see Adelaide sing it. Yeah, like, we do. So, so the real Adelaide sings it, and then Katie does it with... Yeah, so, again, yeah, the repetition. Uh, yeah. And that's one of those nice old music hall kind of numbers. Mm. And then you've got things like My Heart is Higher Than a Hook, which is the song they threw in to give Howard Keeler a solo. His voice is so deep! It is. Like, it's so deep! Yeah. I was actually quite disturbed by how deep his <laughs> voice was. And that, I think, the thing we said, it feels like he's in a different movie. Yeah. He's like singing, he has this very almost kind of operatic, serious he leading does. man singing that doesn't quite suit the style of this at all. Yeah, he, I mean, he, I like him in a couple of other musicals better. Yeah. Even though it's incredibly problematic, Seven Brides for Seven Brothers. Ah, uh, yeah. Good, he's good in that, but you know, it's kidnapping seven women and keeping them up <laughs> in the country over winter is something probably you shouldn't do. But um, it's a <laughs> yeah. good musical, apart, leaving aside all of that dumb and sexist stuff, of course. <laughs> and uh, Kismet, the remake of the Ronald Coleman Kismet's quite fun too. Vincente Minnelli <laughs> directed. He's good in that, <laughs> even though it's cultural appropriation for Arabic culture again. Yep. All that kind well, of stuff. That- it's just all so bad. Like, really, like, once yeah. you get into that stuff, it's like, wow. We have to learn how to love pro- problematic things or we wouldn't watch anything. Uh, yep. Okay, talking about songs, mm. A Woman's Touch. Like, yes. it does many things that I love. One of the things is uh, singing as montage, which mm. is always great. Like, if you've got a montage in a movie, like, especially yep. a montage of getting things done, mm. like, it's one thing training, like, fight training montages are quite fun. Yep. I loved house renovation montage. Like, that was amazing. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and no, the title itself is ambiguous. Isn't it just? Yes, yeah, it, it really very, does add yeah. to that whole subtext of mm. these two women setting up home together and also Katie kind of doing the Pygmalion thing. You know, she's mm. the, the teaching, teaching yep. Kalam to be a more traditionally fem- feminine figure, yeah. uh, which, you know, is just, it, it's a trope, but it's, it's also like a foundation of their friendship. And I like that she mm. does it without being super judgy because that yeah. could come across really strongly but actually she's she's supporting Kalam she actually like tries to make things more comfortable for both of them like that scene where she's waiting she's both the men are in the house yeah. and Katie is kind of clearly uncomfortable and actually would probably like them to leave because mm. there's this like threatening sense really they're both like courting her but mm. I don't know I kind of felt she should pull out a rape whistle at one point yeah. but she's waiting for Kalam to come home and she wants them to see Kalam in her dress and she wants them to see that hey She's not the only viable, you know, attractive Option, yeah. young woman in town. Kalam, you know, she wants them to see her work and admire yeah. her work. She is more proud of Kalam wearing a dress than she is interested in either of these men. Mm. But, of course, when Kalam walks in the door, she fell in the creek and she's covered yeah. in mud. And it's just so awesome. Yeah. <laughs> it's no, well, that's the thing. I mean, even though she's covered in mud, you think, yeah, nice figure. Attractive woman. Super muddy pretty, dress. Yeah. yeah, super pretty. Yeah, muddy dress. Ignore but, the mud. Take her out the back, hose her off. She's perfect. Yeah, yeah well, the, the scene at the ball where she's wearing a heavy coat, which yeah. General Custer's coat, which I love, but she's yeah. like, oh, yeah, obviously this is General Custer's coat. Mm. Uh, Bill appears not to have noticed that she's, like, washed her face, done her hair, and is wearing makeup. No, yeah. it's not until she takes off the coat and he sees the dress that mm. he has that, oh, wow, my best friend's a girl. That's kind uh, of like kind the of... take off the glasses, gee, you're beautiful kind of thing, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. It's, and it's... A, 
you know, it's it's a staple of movies and has been for a long time. It's the it's the makeover. It's she's the man. You know, there are a lot of like teen movie <laughs> romances revolving around the whole. You know, the girl takes the glasses off and hey, isn't she a looker? Yeah. Or in this case, takes off General Custer's coat yes. and is wearing a frog. Oh uh, yeah, and uh, yeah. yeah, Black Hills of Dakota, which apparently people in Dakota like. And I then see why. Secret, and then there's Secret Love, which gets a reprise as well. Um, but yeah, that one, the subtext in Secret Love is definitely there, particularly when she's wandering around near the cabin. Yeah, well, the song mm. doesn't really work any other way because it's like, well, yeah. she's just got together with Bill and it's mm. not like she's planning on keeping it a secret, frankly. She just hasn't got to town yet to tell everybody. Like, yeah. she's like, oh, hang on, I'm into Bill and not into the boring lieutenant. This is, this is fantastic. This is really convenient. It's going to sort all out our problems. Mm. She's not keeping it secret. And like, it, the only way in which her love for Bill was a secret is in that she hadn't actually noticed it herself. So it was a secret from her too. Yeah. Uh, you know, but. Yeah, it makes so much sense if she's talking about Katie. It really does. Oh, there's a thing on YouTube. I, I forgot to mention this about the songs. There's a um, burlesque artist that does a kind of montage of different songs from Calamity Jane oh. wearing buckskins, and then she strips down to her underwear. Wow. Mm. I would definitely like to see the link to that. That sounds awesome. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's there. If you type in Calamity Jane... Um, It'll come up about the fourth one down on YouTube. Cool. Yeah. So I well, quite enjoyed that. But, uh, yeah, so but the song, I mean, Secret Love is a good song. It really does work. Um, yeah. And it's one of those songs that does engage the emotions, even out of context, which is one of the reasons, obviously, it won the Oscar. Yeah, but it does feel like a song that, like, they've added to the movie rather than necessarily one that grows from the story they thought they were telling. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Unless they, unless they, you what they were doing, which is you know always a possibility. Uh, well, they, are, they are professionals, yeah. Yeah, no, but I mean, as far as the, uh, the subtext, subtext goes, like because sometimes um, it's there accidentally, and sometimes it's there deliberately, and you know, I don't know. It, it it's a good song, and she she really sells it, and it's when you you sort of realise, yeah, because she spent the whole movie acting like a very un-Doris Day like figure, yeah. but this is when she kind of starts looking like Doris Day again. Yeah, I think the subtext would have been known to a number of people, particularly the, you know, Hollywood was not without gay and lesbian human beings. Oh, at yeah. The time. And even if they weren't necessarily the people um, at the top end of things, the subtext would have been known to, to a lot of people working on the film and working in the industry at the time. Yeah. And, um, and all those kind of, subterranean gay clubs and gay bars, it would definitely have been known because I know Secret Love plays very well among the drag community. Well, I was thinking Doris Day is one of those actresses who's a bit of a gay icon, isn't she? Mm, she is, not she? No, because, you know, I know we're getting to Liza Minnelli shortly. Mm, yeah. uh, but, and it's like, I wonder if this movie is one of the big reasons why because the I it would not surprise me at all. Well, that and uh, a couple of other movies she did uh, earlier, um, where she was kind of getting slightly Joan Crawfordy. Oh, nice! Yeah, the sort yeah. of diva aspect. Yeah. Well, yeah, and um, I just finished recording the Projection Booth podcast with Mike White, and we did it. We did Mummy Dearest with um, a drag performer. His name is Joshua, but the dra- uh, Joshua's drag name is Peaches Christ. Oh, yeah. And um, we were talking about that too, and uh, about. Yeah, you know, the gay iconography of certain actors and actresses. Yeah. And Doris Day did come up, I think. But, um, yeah, she's definitely a gay icon, and, and this movie only enhanced that, I suppose. 
I can see why. Yeah. yeah. Um. The the actress who plays Katie, I yeah. I you know, I thought she was fantastic. But I didn't know anything that she'd been in. Is this like the most famous movie that she's been in? I just sort of look so. at her wiki page. Yeah. Doesn't seem to be anything else coming up that's especially. No. Um. It's. One of the problems you've got with that is that you know, people in America, particularly at the time, if somebody got married or went back to um, Broadway, which she did a lot of Broadway stuff, ah, yeah. um, you know, she made life choices that weren't particularly acceptable. She's Canadian too. She was born in Quebec. But uh, you know, basically um, you know, raising a family and doing that kind of thing was contrary to she was in a version of Phantom of the Room. Oh, God, that's kind of cool. Battle Cry. She was in a number of good movies, but then there's a gap between about 62 and 69. So she either did some stage work, which I was apparently very good at, singer, dancer, actor. Yeah. Um, and uh, she was married to George Gaines, the guy that played the old um, uh, boss in the Police Academy movies. Oh, really? Yeah. Well, there you go. Yes, yeah. So it's interesting. You can do links from anything to anything through IMDb. You can go from an Australian actor to the most obscure American actor in about three leaps. Yeah. With, um, with that Kevin Bacon kind of thing. Yeah, absolutely. But anyway, we probably should stop there and do the next one. We'll take a break and then we'll hit a much different musical. Uh, from Very different. Uh, yeah, from two decades later, Cabaret from 1972. This was Germany in the early 30s. Hello, stranger. Full of life. And love. Meine Damen und Herren, Mesdames et Messieurs, Ladies und Gentlemen, Fräulein, Salibos! This was Sally Bowles in the early 30s. Well, I dash all day and I work late at the cabaret. Full of life. I love parties. Doesn't my body drive you wild with desire? And love. Oh, Brad. A special girl. I'm going to be a great film star. <laughs> that is a booze and sex. Don't get me first. On the brink of something fantastic. I mean, it would be funny, wouldn't it, if he asked me to become the next Baroness von Hoyne in Regensburg? And frightening. I'm Sally Bowles. I'm Brian Roberts. And I have this strange, mystical, daddish feeling about you. So you're moving right in, okay? Okay? Have you ever slept with a dwarf? Once, but it wasn't a lasting relationship. Do you sleep with girls or don't you? Sally, you don't ask questions like that. I do. The poor man. He tries to love me. I may have my tiny faults. God damn it, I'm gonna have a baby! Sally is rather knowledgeable in these areas. Does it really matter as long as you're having fun? What good is sitting all alone in your room? Come, hear the music play. Come to the cabaret. Start by admitting the 
talk about a Bob Fosse movie, and I really like Bob Fosse's work. The 1972 American musical drama film Cabaret, starring Liza Minnelli, Michael York, and Joel Grey. Uh, this was the very first adult movie I went to see in the cinema by myself. Oh, really? How old were you? Um, 1972, would have been 15. Yeah, yeah. I went there because I was hoping there was some nudity in it, because that's the kind of movie I was looking to see when I was 15. Yeah, well, and, you know, it was a good bet. Like, yeah. there wasn't really much, was there? But, there wasn't you know. any. It was just, was, I, then that's one of the things. I went looking for one thing, but I found something else with it, and I found yes. that I liked the movie. And there are, were some incredibly shocking bits for me as well. I'm not surprised. Yeah, I also watched it quite young. I would never have seen it in cinema, but I think I watched it for the first time around that sort of age, yeah. certainly in my teens. And, yeah, it was, it was really interesting re-watching it now because I think I've watched it a couple of times through my, my adult life, but it's been a quite a long time. And, yeah. yeah it's, um, there's not too many. I mean, the only other Nazi musical I can really think of is The Producers. Which is a very different kind of music. Well, maybe The Sound of Music at least has, yeah. you know, that, that has quite a big as a background theme yeah. and, and you know, slightly more cheerful but still has some of that sense of, you know, the growing dread that's happening yeah. behind the scenes as the musical unfolds. Like, I really don't like The Sound of Music. The only thing I like is that filthy line in Sound of Music. What is it you can't face? You know that one? No. Oh, yeah, you've got to say welcome to Whoop Whoop. One of the nuns in a very posh English accent says, what is it you can't face? Ah, I goes, see. And, um, and, everybody, and welcome to Whoop Whoop. It's one of the running gags because they're showing Rogers and Hammerstein musicals all the time in this little country town. And ah. um, everybody reads it as that in the movie. Um, so, yeah, and um, I like Julie Andrews in some things, but I don't like her when she's playing that kind of perky and... Um, relentlessly cheerful kind of character. Yeah. It definitely and, does that thing, though, of intersecting with the sort of mm. the growing Nazi kind of uh, power and yeah. how that's affecting your community, but it's sort of happening in the background of the story until it interacts yeah. quite more dramatically. And, and who knew escaping Nazis was as easy as singing your way across mountaintops? Well, if you sing, like, really, really well, no, there's there's no justification for that. But you know what? If it works, it works. And if it works, you damn well have to make a musical about it afterwards. I'm actually, I'm actually really excited. Speaking of Bob Fosse, mm. uh, I'm quite excited. We have a, uh, a stage showing of Chicago coming here to Hobart later in the July. Oh, cool. I think we've, got, we've got tickets. I'm very oh, nice. excited. Yeah, um, I've got the soundtrack to the original one, which had Gwen Verdon and Chita Rivera in it. Okay. And, and that was the one Fosse actually directed yeah. on stage. And that one works really well. Um, I didn't particularly like the Rob Marshall movie adaptation. I think it weakened it a bit. But, That's um, yeah. all I really know from Chicago and stuff. But though with Cabaret, I actually have a soundtrack that I love, which is the Alan Cumming Toya Wilcox mm, yeah. version, which I listened to for years because I actually wrote a, a fantasy trilogy years ago uh, the Creature Court, and one of the aspects of it was it had, like, 1920s kind of influence, and it actually had cabaret musical-style stuff happening. So I was listening to this stuff as, like, soundtracks while writing for years. So, yes, very attached to the, the soundtracks of these movies. Yeah, uh, just give me a few seconds, because there's a book you should try to find it. Uh, 
Okay, let's try spelling things right because there's a book called Voluptuous Panic. Okay, I already about, like it. Which is about um, the erotic world of Weimar Berlin. Ooh. It's available on Kindle, but it's crazy expensive but because it's got a lot of pictures in it. But no, no, I, okay. I've actually read it, and um, it's about the whole 1920s and 1930s cabaret scene and cultural scene in Weimar Germany and this kind of is a foreshadowing to cabaret so yeah um, no, that, that sort of stuff has always fascinated me and like the as much as like the British music hall stuff as well which is a very different kind of thing and not quite the same level yeah. of political charge but you have this sort of stuff happening across different cultures as well the 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 kind of yeah the what they can get away with singing is often a lot more uh, raunchy than yeah. you know any other entertainment of the time, and even the stuff that sounds quite innocent to us now. Like, I love one of the things, I mean, about cabaret that's so mm. cool about it is the way that they show how those little bits of political significance were kind of dropped into the silly, saucy songs. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, the thing that came out of Optus Panic that surprised me was in Berlin in the 1920s one quarter of the adult population had something to do with the entertainment or the sex industry during that, all of that hyperinflation. That's they really were, interesting. They were pimping, they were prostitutes, they were clients, they were doing things for cabarets, they were catering to them, any of that kind of stuff, but a quarter well, of the adult population. Actually, yeah, once you include clients, that doesn't mm. surprise me at all anymore. I mean, if you do, we're just talking professionals, mm. then that might be surprising, but yeah. But no, that that is... That is is all really interesting, and yeah, that because of course, I mean, this you know the where a lot of the alternative uh, cultures and queer communities and all that this the the theatre and the entertainment industry was their safe space as much as mm. there was a safe space until of course it was a lot less safe, which is one of the things yeah. the the movie chronicles one of the most depressing musicals of all time. Absolutely, I, I, yeah. totally, I totally agree. And the other thing that, um, that that time in Germany had an influence on was film as well. Billy Wilder was a journalist in yeah. Berlin at the time, so he saw all of that decadence and things, and that kind of informed movies like Some Like It Hot with the kind of gender-bending stuff in that. It was all part of Billy Wilder's cultural upbringing. As a, he was an Austrian, but he worked as a journalist in Germany during all of that stuff. And so yeah. he had a very sophisticated viewpoint on gender and cabaret and, and um, sexuality and all sorts of things like that. He was um, it, it kind of informed movie culture for decades afterwards and on into the present, of course. Yeah, that, that's really interesting. I know um, it, a year or two ago I was doing some research on women and their influence on science fiction over the 20th century, mm -hmm. and I did some research on Thea von Habu, who was the, mm -hmm. the writer behind Metropolis, which is you know, yeah. the, one of the first science fiction and uh, movies. Mond and Dick Rowan Mond. Yeah, and, and her, like, she was sort of this pioneer of science fiction, but also uh, very, very likely either, well, either a Nazi sympathiser or somebody mm -hmm. who was did a very good job of pretending to be so for her career, it yeah. sort of lays it, well, either it gets to a point where it doesn't really matter either way. It's still... Well, it's still, that's the know. other thing with the Nazis. The first man to win a Best Actor Oscar was a Nazi. Yeah. Yeah, it was uh, Emil Jannings, okay. who won it um, at the, just on the edge of the silent film ending. First Oscar for Best Actor was won by a guy who ended up being a Nazi. 
So yeah, there's um a lot of that going on. So yeah, anyway, the plot of the film um it's situated in Berlin during the Weimar Republic, starting in 1931, but it does seem to go on for a little bit. It's based on Berlin stories by Christopher Isherwood and the play I Am a Camera, which um, John Van Druten wrote in 1951. Um, it's basically the story of a young man who travels to Berlin. And his character name is Brian Roberts, which is a generic character name, really, for Michael York's character. Um, and he ends up boarding in a little boarding house, and he was going to teach English to German students, or German people who want to learn English in Germany. And one of his, uh, the other people living in the building is a cabaret artist, Sally Bowles, played by Liza Minnelli. And they start a very kind of tentative relationship. And the movie kind of uses the cabaret that Sally works in as a way of cross-cutting and understanding the growth of Nazism in Germany. Is that fair to say? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And of course, yeah. one of the things it does that it always breaks the rules of, of musicals and also maybe changes the rules of musicals mm. in that all the music that we see is actual music that is performed. Like there are no people breaking into song to talk about their yep. feelings. Mm. Uh, we just see the performances. And in fact, the only one that doesn't take place in the club is, again, it's the young man singing in the... the Tomorrow uh, belongs open, to me. Yeah, the open-air restaurant. So it's, it's only... The only songs we see are actual performed songs within the reality of the story, but they do intersect with the stories in very interesting ways and with the, the feelings. Yeah, the, there's a... The kind of big bit is the cross-cutting between a cabaret song and a Jewish businessman being beaten up by Nazis in the street. Yeah. You got that kind of thing. So, um, so the characters, yeah, Brian's kind of an English guy, uh, who's a little uncertain of his sexuality, let's say. He, he's tried to sleep with three girls and hasn't been successful. But, um, he does form a relationship with Sally. And that then expands as a guy called Fritz comes into a very wealthy, um, German guy who's a, um, nobleman. And they form a very interesting menage, uh, which is also, um, kind of foreshadowed and then kind of duplicated. No, no, they don't do that with Fritz. They do that with Maximilian. Maximilian, sorry, yeah. Fritz 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 is is the other friend. Fritz is the guy who's a gigolo. Yes. Sorry, yeah. Who is is Jewish but pretending not to be Jewish and then he accidentally falls in love with a Jewish heiress which just completely screws up his life. But, you know. It makes him find his true self in a way too. It does. It Mm. does. But, you know, it's like it really messes with his gigolo plan of life. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, well, you know, again, that, yeah. that's that Weimar Republic thing about so many people being involved in the sex industry and, and other related yeah. industries at the time. It's very consistent with that. I like the fact, too, that they filmed it in Germany as well. There's lots of little bits with buses and street scenes that really make that work because of that um, location stuff as well. But uh, how about we get to the songs first and then talk about yeah. the deeper aspects? Yeah. So we've got Willkommen with Joel Grey, and Joel Grey's fantastic. Oh, he's so good. He's um, Um, he's MC. Yeah. He's just so good and so creepy. Like, I actually, uh, how I introduced to my 12-year-old that I wanted her to watch this movie Mm. was when we saw his, he has a cameo in a late season of Buffy uh, where he plays a demon. And you know what? He's slightly less creepy in that than he is in this movie. Like, he's so sinister and powerful and charged Mm. But also vulnerable, you know. He's yeah. There's this sense that this world that he loves is falling apart, and he's just so good. <laughs> he never says one word off stage. 
No. We only know him through what he does on stage and the looks he gives and feeling up blows him nearly tits in one scene. But That's apart true. From the, yeah. Apart from that, he's a, he's a kind of enigma in yeah. a way and um, very creepy for that. I saw Joel Grey's first movie um, about a year ago. Yeah. He was he had a small scene jitterbugging in a movie called Calypso Heatwave. Wow. Which was during that Calypso craze. Everyone thought Calypso was going to replace rock and roll. So they did about three or four Calypso movies, very low budget for Columbia Pictures. And right at the start, you see Joel Grey, who's very short and incredibly young, doing this crazy energetic jitterbug dance with a girl at the start of the movie. Yeah. It's yeah. so weird to think of him as being in other things. Like, he just seems like he was born for this movie and, like, yeah. this is his part. Mm. And, uh, yeah, did he ever do it on the stage? Um, I'm now, uh, yeah, I'm now looking and wondering because it just yeah, seems like the sort of thing he would have done, but I don't yep. know. He was also it's in just... the adaptation of The Fantastics, the musical The Fantastics that was done. Yeah, in and, of course, sorry, I just think that the thing that actually got me really excited was we watched um, – we had a local performance of Wicked, which I saw for the first time mm-hmm. this summer. I hadn't realised that he, like, was the first – he, he – um, he was the original wizard when mm. the, the show first went to Broadway. Yeah. And that was kind of like, oh, that explains a lot about, like, not just just the part, because it's a very, yeah. it's quite a creepy take on The Wizard of Oz. Hey, like, you even want more a, than usual. You want another head spin? Okay. He's Agent Coulson's father-in-law. <gasps> oh, no, of course I know. he is. That. Yeah. I knew that I knew that he was married to Jennifer Grey, but I never actually thought of that. That's mm. amazing. I knew that would spin you out. <laughs> it did. It yeah. did. I love that. Yeah. So you but, got that. Yeah. Uh, um, you yeah. So you got Bill Common, which is fantastic, right at the start before yes. we know anything about anything that comes in. I, um, I found it he, really hard not to sing along to this movie, yeah. but you know, other people were watching it with me. And there's also a reference to it in Blazing Saddles, where Lily von Stupp goes, "Bill Common, baby, you welcome." When, yeah. um, when the sheriff's coming into her room. Um, yeah, so they got Mine Hair, which is um, yeah, a kind of homage to the economic necessities of being poor in Weimar, Germany. Yeah. Um, maybe this time, which is Sally Bowles being optimistic. Yeah, and I, that happens. That particular song comes in right after she and Brian kind of get together, which yeah. adds this real element of vulnerability, especially yeah. as, you know... Yeah, it it she she does seem very invested in the relationship considering everything we know about her up till that point. Yeah. It suddenly is this like, oh wow, she's actually really invested in this romance and mm. Yeah. It's 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 this odd fractured relationship that they have. Yeah, that, and um yeah. she doesn't always tell the truth. No, well yeah. neither of them, yeah. No, so. none of them do. Yeah, and then you've got money money, which is kind of there. <laughs> Love that yeah. one. The performance of that, like the yeah. physical comedy of that, and yeah. the the way that she and and the host kind of yeah. uh, they play off each other, mm. and they're just such a good partnership. Yep, and two ladies, which is um, a funny one. Uh, yeah, best song about a menage, I know. It's very um, cute, but also yeah. again, yeah, the placing of it in the movie is yeah. just at the point at which mm. their friend Maximilian has whisked them away to the mansion, and it's like. Mm. Uh, you know, is he just after Sally? Is he after both of them? Yeah. There's that whole scene where it kind of almost looks like they're going to actually go for it in a mm. three-way kiss, but, like, Brian loses consciousness because he's so drunk. Yeah. And misses yeah. some of what eventuates later. Uh, yeah, mm. there's that whole, whole – it, 
yeah, it's the thing where the songs kind of are telling you what's going on in the story. So there isn't like we don't get sex scenes. We don't mm, get no. you know very much in the way of nudity. I think there's a bit of topless Michael York here and there. Yeah. Uh, but though less so than in the Three Musketeers, I've got to say, where and he then from there, was allergic to shirts. Yeah, and then from the Maximilian one, it tilts dark. And then you get yes. Tomorrow Belongs to Me, which is one of the things that shocked me at the time. Oh, so, yeah. It's um, so amazingly staged, yeah. but it's so chilling. And mm. especially, I've got to say, watching it now, because I'm watching it now with my husband sitting next to me, and I'd already like made a couple of, you know, well, hey, yeah, this is about the, you know, we're, we're talking about, we're watching the creeping things of the fascist movement yeah. and stuff like that. It's like, well, you know, we're looking at what's happening in the world right now, and there's a lot of this stuff happening very, very openly. Mm. And it feels like you just turned around and there it was. And that's what they do in this song, that thing of this beautiful young man singing the sweet song and then you see that he's wearing the uniform mm. and then everybody starts singing along with him and you realise that you're basically at a, you know, um, a flash point. mob yeah. Nazi yeah. rally. Yeah, it's, and, um, oh. it's, it's shocking and it's beautifully staged and it, it's one of the things that creeps up on it. And, yeah, punch yeah. a Nazi if you get a chance to. Yeah. <laughs> But um, oh. then you've got If You Could See Her, which is the, one of the second thing that shocked the hell out of me. Yes, and that was very controversial mm. with the movie itself because, again, like the movie is depicting some of the awful things that happened the way that um, some of the things that, you know, Nazis believed and what they did. And, and the, the point of the song, I think, is very much that it's pointing out yeah. Um, you know, anti-Semitism, but I can see why a lot of people, mm. especially Jewish community groups, would actually not be okay with that being performed in the film, even despite the fact that it's like making that political point, because the way it's presented is in such a way as mm. it's like, well, now you've heard the song, but it's yeah, yeah. it's it's that you know, politics and real world seeping into the theatre. Very much so, and of yeah. course that was always there. Like even like the sex stuff is like, well, that's mm. political too. Yeah. Um, but yeah, in this case, the fact that he's singing the love song about his 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 forbidden love with yeah. a woman in a gorilla costume. Yeah. Uh, like, and it looks like that's what the song's about. But then the line at the end saying that she's Jewish, and then mm. it's like, or you wouldn't know, was it? She she wouldn't look Jewish at all. Yeah. And it's like, wow, he just said that in front of people, mm. and. It's it's painful, but it's also yeah that that's juxtaposed with the relationship between Fritz and his uh, the heiress and yeah. the fact that he's you know he was trying to seduce this very wealthy Jewish heiress mm. only to accidentally fall in love with her, which is very inconvenient. Yeah. She he wanted nothing to do with him because he's a gigolo and mm. also he's Christian, mm. and that's where he had to reveal that actually he's Jewish as well, but he's. Yeah. He, he was managed, passing, yeah. Yeah, he was he was passing as, as he was deliberately he had faked papers, mm, mm. Um, and that whole thing of like, is this going to be a deal breaker, honey? Uh, yeah, and and we don't really get resolution with their relationship on what happened to them. We don't really mm. get resolution on anyone. Like what happens as like we're left on the precipice of this movie yep. just before the nut really. Yeah. Well, overwhelmingly, guess... all the big changes come, but like there's there's just doom everywhere. Like it's just doom. yeah. I mean, doom. we can pretty much guess the resolution to their story because they're neither of them is particularly bold person. Yeah, all we can hope of... for is they have a lot of money, so maybe they get out in time. Like yeah, that, again, but you know, doesn't people didn't think it would happen. That's the problem. 
Yeah, but they they know like they know that something's coming, and it's it's yeah. clear like the fact that when she first turns him down, it's like I'm I'm a Jewish woman in this this, yep. this city, and I you know they, they know that something's coming. But yeah, so many didn't. Some did get out, but so yep. few. And the ones that did get out, let's face it, were majority the ones who uh, had resources. So yep. kind well, of who had friends overseas as well. I mean, a lot of the yes. Um, actors and directors and movie people that got out only got out because um, they had contacts overseas, particularly amongst Warner Brothers in particular. Uh, yeah. A lot of people left because they had a place to go to and yeah, they had and a job little, with Warner Brothers. Yeah, and and it happened with some artists and musicians and stuff too and in, in Britain. I like to think there's like an unofficial sequel where Brian has like Fritz and Natalia like living in his little cottage in Cambridge <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> because, you know... <laughs> It's like, well, they know somebody in England. It's going to be, it's it's all going to be fine. Yeah. And they all live happily ever after in Israel. Yeah. Yeah, sure. But it doesn't play like that in the movie. Uh, No, no, it's just doom. Yeah. And the the third eyeball punch for me was the very last scene where they stop the music. Yeah. And pan across the, um, the polished metal of the wall of the cabaret. So you can see the, the audience. Yes, and the audience are basically majority now Nazis or, like, overtly yeah. Nazis. It's like, for all yeah. we know, it could be the same people. It's yeah. just now they're wearing the badges. But the fact that this place that was so safe and queer and weird and, like, sexually open and had this diverse, wonderful community, they're still performing the same songs yeah. to some extent. Uh, but they have this terrifying audience that probably actually wants to kill most of them. Um, yeah, and and Sally Bowles is still working there. Yes, she is. Uh, she she's got this kind of self. Then we should talk about the character. She's got this self-image yeah. that she's going to be an actress and she's going to meet somebody who works for Ufa, which was a German film company that Fritz Lang and um, yeah. Billy Wilder and that worked for, and um, Ernst Lubitsch as well early on. Um, she's got this kind of idea that she can be a great actress yeah but she's working in this cabaret and doesn't get outside her comfort zone while she's waiting for somebody else to do something to propel her career rather than her doing something to propel her career and little though she knows it like she's probably the one one of the least aware of what's going on really out of everybody in the film uh yeah it's all just going to implode and she's going to be stuck there which is kind of terrifying but hey at least she's not pregnant at the end because like because well, yes. my husband actually misread like one of the mm. scenes and he was at the end he's yeah. like so she hadn't had the abortion yet and i'm like no no she did and he's like yeah. oh okay so at least like she's not so trying to raise a for me, yeah. baby and, yeah you're just yeah. like she's not gonna be trying to like raise a baby and all this at least it's okay yeah, yeah but mm. still it's terrifying mm. um yeah so it should be the worst mother wouldn't you Oh, yeah, she, yeah. She, she would not be good at it. No, neither no. of them would. And I think at least she had the sense to recognise it. Her yeah. relationship with Brian is really interesting. They're such amazing friends. Mm. Uh, like, they're really cool. You know, she's, you know, she blows into his life. It has a very, yeah. um, it reminded me a lot of another very famous movie based on a very depressing short story, mm. uh, which is Breakfast at Tiffany's. There's that yeah. whole kind of like, She's got the manic pixie girl thing going mm. about it. She blows into his life and she's part of his friendship. And it's really, frankly, only when they try and turn it into like a romantic sexual relationship that yep. things start getting kind of awkward. Because before that, they were just such great friends. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, and and but they have these very different. And like he, once there's the baby, he can kind of clicks into responsibility mode, and we're going mm. to live in Cambridge, and we're going to have this life together, and I'll support you, and everything's going to be fine. And you can just see her brain like she tries it on that little fantasy, and she's yeah. like, "Yeah, there's no room for me in that fantasy. Like that's not her life. That's not a life she's ever seen for herself." Yeah, and can and, you see Sally Bowles living in Cambridge in the nineteen oh forties? Yeah, no. with a baby, and it's like yeah. no. No. no, she would leave that baby with him and she would be yeah. gone within three months because, come on, that's not her. And, in fact, the one of the, the big show-stopping song, mm. uh, which I didn't realise came so late in the movie, mm. but Cabaret itself, which is yeah. the story of, uh, you know, Elsie and Chelsea and yeah. that whole thing about it's pretty much live hard, die young, mm. leave a beautiful corpse. Like, that mm. is Sally Bowles. That's her kind of ultimate... Philosophy, really. It doesn't fit with that domestic thing. And so she recognised that and then she chooses to to leave him and have the abortion because, like, that's... Which also, I've got to say, pretty subversive and controversial thing to show on on screen, especially when the person... Yeah, especially when the person having the abortion doesn't end up, like, dead or punished. I mean, sure, she's still in Weimar, Berlin, Berlin, so she's not, like, got away like unscathed but mm. it's still actually to this day very very rare to see that portrayed in any kind of pop culture yeah and she makes her own decisions and lives life on her own terms even though the, the worst possible terms yeah exactly like she's yeah. self-destructing but it's like it's her choice yeah and it's her yeah and there's this whole life to her that we don't see like she has this fantasy about her relationship with her father, which clearly doesn't Isn't exist. True. Yeah, yeah. She has this whole thing where they're like best friends and he comes and from his terribly important. She also, like, you get the impression that she does come from money, maybe not quite as mm. much money and power as she implies. Yeah. But that explains a lot. Like, if she comes from a very spoilt, wealthy background, mm. she has a certain degree where she's kind of slumming it here and she kind of loves that. Yeah. But there's this sense where part of her always kind of feels like she's got a safety net if she wants to run to it, but she doesn't want to run to it. Yeah, and the safety net's closing as the Nazis become more powerful because oh, she may not yeah. be able to get out of the country. Very and, likely. And, and then you've got the other part of the movie, the kind of subtext, which is Sally Bowles as a drag performer or a, as a trans person reinventing themselves. There's, yeah. There's that interpretation as well. Yeah, it's interesting. I hadn't really thought of it that way. But definitely she has that thing which was very much a, I guess, a performative fashion of the time with the um, wearing the men's clothing and also the fact that she, like, the way that she acts and behaves, you know, she has Mm. that kind of, yeah, I I can see that. I've I've always, like, I know that, again, Liza Minnelli is is kind of a, a, a gay icon. Largely, yeah. I assume. Well, she married of, a gay, two gay men in her life yeah. so far. Yeah. Peter Allen and uh, that David Guest guy. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. Which she's, is a family trait, by the way. Her mother did that as well. Yeah. Well, it's, uh, yeah, but no, she just, the, the performance and the way that she kind of takes control on stage is very, very interesting. And again, we have a character who's both strong and vulnerable and. Mm. Very self-destructive. I feel so sorry for the character in the sense that if she had a little more self-knowledge and a little more kind of emotional intelligence, 
she could have dodged a lot of the stuff that's coming her way in the future. Yeah, she could. But at the same time, like, she, the living on the edge is where she feels more like herself than any other time. Like, you can't really see her being anything other than what she is. Yeah. Yeah, she's. She's a very powerful character. I know you made the comment earlier about, like, strong female characters, and it's the thing where, you know, she's not necessarily emotionally strong, but she's such a fascinating character. And I think, in a lot of ways, a lot more empowering than... It's probably a very unfair comparison, but I did keep thinking back to Breakfast at Tiffany's and that Holly Go Lightly thing, which they have a lot in common, Mm. Uh, one of which is that they are fantasy women designed by men. Um but yeah, that that vulnerability, but also there is that that strength to her, and she knows who she is. Whereas Michael York's character is very uncertain yep. about the world. Yeah, he's very passive. Like he's this, you know, PhD student who's come to Germany. We're never even really clear, like why he's specifically there. Is he just there to like immerse himself in the culture? Is this like the equivalent of a gap year? He always has the thing where he's going back. He's short on money. But, like, yep. surely this isn't necessarily, like, the best place to go to make money in a hurry. Like, he's obviously just, like, this is his sort of travelling and trying to pick up a bit of... A lot of people did that know. at, at yeah. the time. A lot of people from uh, England in particular and France to an extent went to Germany because everything was dead cheap. you got to remember this is hyperinflation times. Yeah. And um, the German bakers along the French border were the only wealthy people in Germany because they would sell their baked goods in France for francs. <coughs> and, nice. and, you know, one franc was worth 100,000 Deutschmarks um, because of that strange hyperinflation. I've actually got a German um, hyperinflation banknote that I picked up in England. <laughs> and it's for something like, you know, like 100,000 Deutschmarks. And it's only printed on one side because it was worth so little they it wasn't worth printing on both sides of the banknote. Yeah. Wow. Um, it was it was a crazy time in, in Germany, and that's the reason why everybody was, you know, the tourist trade was fantastically big in Berlin because that was the only way of getting foreign currency into the country. Yeah. And so anything they could do to get the money out of people, you know, prostituting themselves, whatever they needed to do, people were starving to death. Well, I really love the, the, the relationship with Sally and, and Brian. It's kind of cemented where she kind of becomes his – let's face it, she kind of becomes his pimp. Uh, she, she, like, she hustles for him. He's just here. He has this vague idea if he's going to take English students, and that's how he's going to finance his indeterminate time abroad yeah. uh, while he takes a break from his studies. Uh, and she's just like, oh, here's this guy that I can introduce you to. He's going to pay you this. And, oh, here, here's this, you know, writer of pornography who pay you 50 francs uh, and all this sort of thing. And and so she basically takes it upon herself to protect him in a way, but also just, yeah. like, help him out because that's what she does, talking people into stuff. And she's just yeah. – what life is one long hustle. Like, yeah. when she sees Maximilian and she forms this friendship, part of her – is joking and part of her is like well yeah you know what this guy could marry me and then he'll like support me yeah she deludes herself with that kind of romantic fantasy in a sense yeah she does but it's not just a romantic fantasy i think Mm. it's like very clearly a commercial thing it's Mm. like hey if i could find some rich guy to support me then that's going to be actually a more realistic way to achieve my dream it's like well yeah if you could that would be and of course becoming his mistress is far more likely uh except that he 
disappears from the pit. He disappears from the picture pretty much as soon as he gets into both of their pants. Like, he gets well, what he also, wants, and he's out of there. You know, he's gone. He's also out of there because they went for that lunch in the country, and he saw what the country was becoming, yes. and he pissed off to Argentina. Yes, very much so. But you see the threat it, to himself. Yeah, and that there's was a lot there, of that. Yeah, the, the awareness that, yes, everything everything's changed. So he got out. Mm. Uh, he's one of those little less likable characters. Of course, mm. he got out. Um yeah, it, it is It is very interesting, though, that that whole sense of people are still trying to run their lives as if they're normal, and we know that normal is rapidly disappearing. Yeah. Well, Part maybe somebody, so do, do. someone could retcon Cabaret and make it a, an American. Yeah, like wow. fleeing Trump and fleeing... And while the Cabaret is going on, it becomes more and more kind of right-wing and Fox yeah. Newsy kind of thing. Yeah, but um, it's yeah. horrifying, but true. Yeah, so somebody could retcon that. It, um, if they do, they, they should send me a ticket to the opening night. And if they but, did, it would actually it would actually be based around Saturday Night Live and the whole yeah. horror story of we're trying to satire what's going on politically, but A, it's not funny anymore, and B, reality is actually like like the satire we're writing is actually more sensible and well thought out than what's actually happening in politics. What do Very we actually so. do? Like, I think that would actually genuinely make an interesting film, probably yeah. in about 20 years when everybody's sort of, you know, knows how it all yep. turned out, assuming yeah, we're not all just living in zombie wastelands by then. No, I don't think we will, because I, I agree with Frank Zappa. Frank Zappa said there won't be a nuclear war. It would affect real estate values too much. Hmm. Yeah. <sighs> so so that's, that's the approach I'm taking, because it's one of the ways to stay sane in this crazy environment at the moment. But yeah, yeah. I mean, that, that that's another thing that makes this movie so kind of accessible and contemporary, is that kind of shift to the right that happens in Germany during the movie. Yeah. Um, I'm glad that what they don't do is they don't give us, like, anything like a point-of-view character who's, like, mm. a Nazi. Yeah. And, and they could have so easily done that. You know, it would have been, like, an awful kind of, like, well, here's this lovely, charming person that we like, and, oh, look what they're wearing now. Uh, mm. They actually never do that. I, I think that would be, like kind of cheap like even like yeah the, the 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 people that we are following and that we're liking are the the people who are noticing what's going on the people who aren't noticing but we're yep. not actually being made to sympathize in any way apart from perhaps that you know 30 seconds before they pan down with mm. the pretty boy in in tomorrow belongs to me yeah um yeah, they, they're not actually asking us to sympathise with that side, which would, I think, be be kind well, of... Yeah. But the, the thing about this is, too, the, the, about the whole movie, the, the love is the fact that Fosse did it. He'd had a big failure with Sweet Charity four years before, which I'm going to be talking about with Alyssa next time around, by the way. Yeah, I've never seen uh, that one, so I, I will have to listen and find out. I'll have to, I'll have to chuck you one. Please um, But, yeah, but um, the... Yeah, the thing is that Fossey came back. He, he, of course, started out on Broadway. He was married to Gwen Verdon, who was a fantastic Broadway actress and dancer. Um, and he did all that jazz as a biopic later on. And he gave Michael Jackson every dance move the man ever had. Wow. But, but he came back from a, a major failure because Sweet Charity really did die big time. And then his next movie wins Academy Awards all over, eight Oscars or something like that. It's not 
really something that's in the zeitgeist of 1972 being about Nazi Germany and cabaret actresses and um, having Liza Minnelli who was known to play cute roles in things like the sterile cuckoo and, and those kind of things and then suddenly this gut punch of a musical with a serious theme yeah and which very sorry it's just saying it's not like musicals. It's not like people would have expected for musical. Nobody would have seen this movie coming. Like it's so surreal mm. and unsettling. Mm. And Fosse was a genius for that kind of thing. Yeah. And, um, and just kind of doing it. Uh, by the way, the cinematographer for this, the cinematography is fantastic as well. Um, a guy called Jeffrey Unsworth. You're going to like this. Here's the other movie. Some of the other movies he did the cinematography for. Okay. 2001. Wow, okay. Zardoz. Wow. The Return Actually, of the I Pink... can see that. Uh, did, he, yeah. did he also do that costume design? Because no. <laughs> Sorry. Murder on the you... Orient Express, Return of the Pink Panther, and all three of the early Superman movies. Oh. Yeah, wow, so... so he liked to challenge, is what you're saying. He liked a challenge. He did some fantastic work. And in this one, it works really well. You get those beautiful scenes where you're almost like a waiter wandering through the audience as the cabaret is happening because yeah. the camera moves around. And you're at about the right level to be not an audience member just sitting passively there, but one of the people working in the cabaret, which gives the scenes an extra energy. Yes. And and um, there are a lot of small spaces in this movie. There's the apartments. There's the cabaret, which is not an enormous room. There's no. the backstage at the cabaret. There's a couple of other things. Except for that scene, perhaps, um, with Tomorrow Belongs to Me, yeah. most of it's in very intimate circumstances, and keeping those kind of limited amount of locations interesting. Most is of the shot that... at night, too. Like, even when they have external shots, it's almost yeah. all, apart from the, the, the lunch with the Tomorrow Belongs to Me, and a couple of, like, you know, weird fantasy picnic shots where yeah. Michael York and Liza Minnelli are pretending that they can, you know, have Make this ordinary go. domestic yeah. life. But mostly it's like, yeah, streets and like the guy being beaten up and this mm. darkness. Well, the cabaret people, they work at night too. Yeah, they're nocturnals. Just, yeah, they're definitely nocturnals. But yeah, it, uh, it's not a movie I'm going to revisit a lot, but it's a movie I treasure because of, of that kind of iconic status of being the first grown-up movie that I saw it as, in a theatre. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, yeah, and I think it's a valuable movie. It's a movie to remember and to use as a cautionary tale in a way. And uh, if people want to see something else around that, they might want to look at the 1950s movie I Am A Camera, which had Julie Harris and Lawrence Harvey in it, which tells the same story without the music. Yeah, it's adapted from the same book in it, but it kind of adapts yeah. slightly different bits. And so for Cabaret, they took yeah. different bits from the stories. And, and mm. one of the things I thought that was particularly interesting, which, of course, is a casting aspect, mm. is that, you know, we talked about, we talked about Brian being a boring name. Brian, uh, Brian's character was originally Cliff, and he was an American. And presumably mm. Sally Bowles is, is originally supposed to be an English character. She um, was, yeah. If nothing else from the song, the cabaret song, you know, mm. where she's talking about having two rooms in Chelsea. So... Yeah. Yeah, but, yeah, well, original... but it just feels like like her being American, her being Liza Minnelli, works for this in the same way that Michael York, you know, being that sort of quite passive British academic mm. who's a bit uncertain about everything from, you know, life choices to sexuality to everything, you know. He's just so restrained. 
So it'd be, yeah, it'd be really interesting to see the alternative, to see that it flipped. Yeah, it's um, it, it really is an important piece of cinema, I think, and having a, a musical be that kind of not heavy, but that important as as a cultural thing. Yeah. And unfortunately, and, and this pisses me off every time I think about it, timely as well as as things are drifting to the right and to the authoritarian, yeah. which annoys me enormously. These kind of movies become that much more important because cautionary tales, even when we don't listen to them, it's important that they're there because somebody does listen to them in some way and then people are educated and informed by them, even if they are kind of framed in an educated, in a musical rather than as a documentary or something like that. Well, fiction is a way of humanising history, even if, mm. like with Calamity Jane, they get a lot of the history so wrong. Mm. There's still that sense where when people then read about the history or learn about the actual history, having loved a story that's told there it does humanize it it makes that emotional connection which can sometimes be all the difference between paying attention yeah and this movie does show how that drift to the right and drift to authoritarianism and to a monstrous machine of a culture can yeah. occur uh, it does give you that kind of arc of yeah they're, they're just thugs but we can keep them under control and then suddenly the thugs are running things yeah um, it, it's just an important lesson for anybody in any culture at any time to learn. Yeah, very much so. Anyway, we probably should wrap it up there because this is going very long, but I don't care because I have fun. Thank <laughs> you again, Tansy. I would invite you again if you'd like to come. Oh, absolutely. Uh, I love um, old movies and I love talking. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's what podcasts are in this context. But, yeah, thank you very much for that. Are you coming up to Melbourne for a continuum? I am. I will see you there. I will buy you a coffee, I promise. That would be lovely. Okay. Well, anyway, we'll wrap it up there. I'll just do the tail end saying thank you to the Patreon subscribers, of which Tansy is one. Uh-huh. And, uh, by the way, oh, I've got one more thing to do. You're going to like this. Okay. I've got an announcement for the Patreon subscriber draw that I did. Okay. You won, you won the box of stuff. Me? You. Oh, that's nice. Yep, you won the um, the Australian one, and I'll, I'll try to keep it small so you can transport it back to Tasmania with you. Yeah. Uh, and Chris Mounts in the US is the overseas one who gets a couple of movie posters from my collection. Aww. So there we go. So there's going to be stuff there. I will give you some stuff that you can give to the offspring, but some for yourself as well. That sounds lovely. I've been collecting them for a year. And, and so there's your bonus. How's that? It, it worked nice. out nicely. I did yeah. know there were going to be presents. That's great. There are. <laughs> yeah, there will be cake. Yeah. Excellent. Okay. So anyway, thanks again for that. And no um, I'll be talking next time with Alyssa. We'll be doing 42nd Street and Sweet Charity. Yeah. And thanks again to the Patreon subscribers, including yourself, for supporting the podcast. Um, I just used some of the Patreon money to buy a copy of Voluptuous Panic on eBay while I was talking to you. Seems reasonable. Absolutely. Take care and I'll catch you later, okay? <laughs> you too. Bye, Terry. Okay. Have a good day. Bye. Thank you to all of the Patreon subscribers. And here are the credits in the style of movie credits to acknowledge and thank all of them. We have Tom, our focus puller, Sarah, our special effects technician, Ian, our caterer, Grant, our technicolor consultant, Claire, our script doctor, Gary, our prop master, Morris, our music director, 
Jan, our dialect coach, Armin, our key grip, Matt, our rattlesnake wrangler, Elaine, our scientific advisor, Julia, our casting director, Chris, our camera operator, Christopher, our gaffer, Miss Jane, the wardrobe mistress, Tansy, the foley artist, Alyssa, the location scout, Mark, our second unit director, Paul, our special makeup effects director, Tammy, our donut wrangler, Tim, our New York unit director, Rabbi Steve, our spiritual advisor, Steve, our script doctor, Dylan, our goat wrangler, Eric, our set security lead, Kerry, our second script doctor, Richard, our set photographer, and our extras, Kathleen, Mark, and David. And let's not forget Steve Sullivan, our Director of Monster Effects, and Richard C., our Transportation Co-Captain. So thank you very much to all the subscribers, and you too can subscribe at patreon.com slash paleocinema. 